Hello, everyone. This is Jordan Smart, your favorite host. I'm not doing the hand thing this time. I learned my lesson. But we are excited to have you here with us at Affirmative Interaction. Hey, don't forget, we do have a podcast and we do need nice reviews. Um, we're going to be making sure we have the podcast in our Instagram um, you know, on the banner frequently, just so you know where to find it. So we have a lot to talk about today. So we're just going to get right into it. Again, we're glad that you're all here. Um, and we also have a special guest with us. It is the incomparable Pastor Timothy Nixon. He is a, I would say, SDA thought leader, pastor, father, grandfather, and uh Amazing chaplain, former chaplain of Andrews uh, University. Uh, we're so glad that you're here with us. Thank you for taking out the time. So Garrison, I know that you like to wear a nice shirt, so thank you for wearing one today. <laughs> but there has been some tension brewing between the, I would say, the tenets of what consists, what makes Black Lives Matter what it is, and Christianity. Tell us a little bit about that. That's been brewing. That's been cooking up. And um, yeah, and I, and I know for a fact you have an experience with this tension. So please share. Yeah. So as you all may or may not have been seeing on social media over the last probably week, week and a half or so, there's been this growing debate about Black Lives Matter, the organization. Uh, Christians are questioning whether or not it is appropriate for them to support an organization that is openly affirming of those in the LGBTQ plus community. They're questioning whether or not it's appropriate for them to support an organization and a movement who's, uh, where the leaders you know, are openly uh, talking about learning and being trained. Marxists is what's being passed around. So, so Christians, some Christian leaders have found themselves in um, a quandary over whether or not this is appropriate. Um, most recently, uh, this weekend, there was a former professor at Southern Adventist University. I invited him to, um, to watch this podcast today, so I hope he's here. Uh, he actually shared an article, a, a, a diatribe on, on Facebook essentially saying that Black Lives Matter is an anti-Christian organization and ending his very insulting anti-Black rant by saying all lives matter. And, and this is a person who taught at Southern Adventist University for many years. I actually took a class from this guy um, and he's been an Adventist pastor for quite some time. So there is a real debate happening and, and I guess we'll talk a little bit about the appropriateness of that debate, but just to kind of orient us, there's a huge debate happening uh, with regard to Christianity and Black Lives Matter. Very good. Thank you so much, Garrison, for just getting us started. Um, sir, Pastor Nixon, since you are a guest, I would love to kind of hear your thoughts on this tension between BLM and Christianity. And even, I guess, in the response to what Garrison is experiencing or Garrison just mentioned, um, do you have you been seeing a lot of these discussions happen where BLM has been framed as something that cannot gel with Christianity? And if you have, what are your thoughts on that? Do you agree or disagree? Actually, a uh, if, uh, a friend of mine sent me 
a um, <clears throat> a uh, a video of someone who was preaching about this issue, and they and they showed a a videotape of someone who was showing a Black Lives Matter event. And the person was pouring out libations to um, to the ancestors and all of this kind of thing. And this person was saying that that the leaders of Black Lives Matter um, are spiritualist and all of this kind of thing, and so on and so forth. So, so there are a lot of things out there about Black Lives Black Lives Matter that have been said. Um, negative things, this, that, and the other. You've heard about those who have some violence has gone on at some of their protest rallies, so on and so forth. <clears throat> I would say to those who say things like that, that Christmas comes from paganism. Um, Easter has paganistic um, elements to it. Um, you can find something negative associated with any and everything. Uh, one of the, one of the things that, that we have to do as Christians is recognize that it is our responsibility to have a Christian influence on social movements that have an important role in our society. It's the reason why all of these things that they're saying really give us more of a reason to be involved because we have to be there to lend a moral Christian voice to legitimate social movements that are having an impact on our society so that we can give it a moral and social a moral direction because any movement and every, any and every movement always has a spiritual void that needs to be filled that's what ecclesiastes tells us god places within all of us a spiritual void that needs to be filled and so when we disengage ourselves as christians from being a part of that then they will go to other things to fill that void. So we, by disengaging ourselves, do it a disservice because they're gonna find something to fill that void. So it's important for us to recognize our responsibility to be there, to give that moral leadership. And this is the very thing that Martin Luther King Jr. did. If he was not there, give the, the strong civil rights movements the moral voice of nonviolent direct action to what was going on in the 50s and 60s. There's no telling what would have happened in this country. When you think about, you know, the Black Panther Party, you think about SNCC, you think about all of the, and, and then think about the host of white social movements that were going on at that time the Weathermen Underground, the Yippies, the Hippies, all of those movements, which by the way, did not have a strong white moral voice. And because they did not, 
many of them gravitated to a lot of Eastern religions, Dalai Lama. Um, they got involved in drugs. Some of them followed Charles Manson. And I would contend that because the evangelical movement did not give a moral voice that they drifted in those directions to their detriment. It is because King was there to lend a moral voice that many of these black social movements did have his message, the Christian message of nonviolent direct action that kept them in in the path that they remained in. And, and this is how powerful his message is. It's how powerful his message is. I was at the, the, the Black Lives Matter march that we had in Berrien Springs. It was organized by high school students in Berrien Springs. And the young woman was giving us instructions on what to do. And the first thing she said, this is a, this is a teenager. First thing she said was, this is a nonviolent march. There is no, if, she said, if you think about becoming violent, grab someone and grab me so that we can calm you down. We want no violence. And I was struck by this. I said, isn't this amazing? This young teenage girl whose parents probably weren't born when King was alive, she is espousing nonviolent principles mm. that King espoused when he was on the earth and assassinated in 1968. That's how powerful his message was, that even to this day, when people think about protests, the first thing they think of is that we must do this in a nonviolent manner. And so I would say to those who have questions about what people espouse and this, that, and the other, that we, we as Christians cannot afford not to be involved. We must be there to lend a moral direction, a spiritual direction, because if we do not, they will go in the wrong direction to find a spiritual void, find a spiritual direction to fill that void that is there, because there's always, there's always a search to fill that spiritual void. And it's our responsibility to be there to fill that. Yeah, I, I was just gonna say, I'm, I'm really struck by this idea of there being a spiritual void that, that needs to be filled. I mean, I've never really heard that perspective. And as you parallel it with the white movements, I mean, it just kind of, it makes a lot of sense to me. And that's, that's really powerful stuff. And, and I, I think, you know, a lot of what you know we're seeing in the Black Lives Matter movement can also really help, I think, Christians understand a like a perspective that 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 creates more humanization within our ranks. You know, I think about the civil rights movement and how so many of our civil rights movements have been led by men, cisgendered Christian men, black men and have often erased those who don't fit that exact description. 
So as the Black Lives Matter movement affirms those, you know, the existence and the value that that the lives of LGBTQ plus individuals, they matter as well. I think the church should really feel a bit rebuked in some ways that that our movements haven't always advocated to say that those lives matter as well. It's an indictment, a, a moral indictment even of, of our movements and, and centering the voices of black women, especially, especially uh, considering how often those those individuals are targeted by racial violence. So so I'm hearing like this this beautiful connection where like the Black Lives Matter movement as its own kind of secular thing and the Christian movement as the spiritual voice to provide that connection. I think there's something there's something special that should come from the, the merge of those two things. I'm, I'm curious here and I definitely want uh, to, to bring you guys into this discussion because just kind of jumping off of what uh, Garrison is saying, it seems like a lot of Christians are trying to get to that point where they can have the synergy between something secular like BLM and their own faith, but it always seems as if there are hangups that stop them from getting to that point of seeing how the ideals of BLM and their ideals as a Christian align. So I'm kind of curious, I mean, how do we communicate to people in a way to say, you can move past this hangup and, and not necessarily, you know, lose or, or, or lose your credibility as a Christian? I kind of feel like the message of, you know, I think we, I'll say it this way. I think that we spend a lot of time trying to create an exclusive space where we are supporting people who look like us, people who act like us. And we're basically just trying to live in this bubble of like, well, I support your lifestyle. I like the way that you do that. And the way that you cook is nice. And uh, we're just going to kind of, that's kind of going to be our grounding point. And that's actually going to be the end of our work as well, is just to commune with people who are exactly like us. And I think in that, we, we display an exclusivity that Christ never displayed to us. And inherently, you know, in the Black Lives Movement, they're really saying, guys, when we're talking about Black lives, we're talking about all of them. We're not just talking about heteronormative. We're not just talking about, you know, highly educated. We're not just talking about wealthy, whatever, you know, uh, we're not talking about respectability politics here. We're talking about everyone and we're desiring to instill the simple value that Black Lives Matter, period, regardless of, of how that is expressed. And just to preserve those lives and 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 offer them some dignity. And I don't think that I, I know for sure that that is not beyond the bounds of the love that Christ shows us. Even at, you know while we were sin still sinners, he showed us an immense amount of love and protection and and has offered us grace in areas where we have we have stumbled. And so I don't even think on a very basic level, <laughs> I don't think that aligning yourself with a movement does designed to protect um, lives is counter to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah, I'll, I'll just jump in real quick here to say, um, maybe kind of going in the direction of what you're asking, you know, Jordan, um, I think as Christians in particular, we need to stop 
um, trying to find these barriers and walls between the secular and the sacred. Um, you know, I'm a proponent of the reality that everything is sacred. There's evidence of the divine in everywhere, everywhere and every person and everything. That doesn't mean that we worship everything, but it's an understanding that particularly as we're talking about human image bearers made in the image of God, um, a quote that I always go back to is that if you don't see the image of God and the other look longer. So we need to look at people until we see God and then act accordingly and treat them with that image bearing dignity that they deserve. Um, so I, I think that um, it's just really, you know, it's really weird to me that Christians in particular um, will sit around and figure out ways how they can essentially just like excommunicate people from their list of having to care about them, basically like, oh, you know, they're this or they're that, or all oh, the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, there's they're involved in spiritualism or whatever the case may be, which is just like, okay, man. So so that's that's what it took. Because the thing, the thing with Christians and Black Lives Matter is that this has been going on since 2014. Right. We've heard every kind of excuse in the book as to why Christians shouldn't be involved and engaged with this movement. And this is the flavor of the current month. But once this gets debunked, then there's going to be something else two, three months from now. And so yeah. I think the question becomes, is yeah. there something wrong with Black Lives Matter or is there something wrong with us as Christians, mm -hmm. you know, and, and our propensity to want to figure out a way to um, marginalize the movement to the point where we don't have to pay attention to it. And so I think we need to do some deep introspection as Christians, as Adventists in our context and understand um, that God is calling us to go a lot deeper and to reach a lot further um, and not assume that because of the fact that we're different, which should be obvious, uh, means that we shouldn't engage. Let, let, let me let me just say this. I tell you what struck me as I was watching the video about the, the 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 young people, the group that was pouring out the libations and all of this. I, I, I thought to myself, well, every Christian church believes in the immortality of the soul. So so why is it that them doing this somehow makes them anathema and so different from every other Christian church other than Adventists who believe in the immortality of the soul. I mean, well, why is it that we would suddenly say that this movement now is one that we must have no dealings with when every other Christian church believes in the immortality of the soul? Mm -hmm. it, it, just, it just didn't make sense to me that that would be the conclusion that one would come to based on that issue alone, based on that, just because of that. <clears throat> and uh, I think that we need to have a different, what, what do we understand when Paul says, I become all things to all men so that I might, so that I might win some, how, how do we, how do we, how do we interpret those kinds of texts of scripture? Yeah. How do we understand those things? How do we understand, you know, what Ellen White says about Jesus, about, about he met people where they are. He found, you know, commonality with them. He he went to where they were. He he ministered to their needs, and then he bade them confront. How do we understand things like that? How do we how do we interpret those things if it 
it is not trying to find common ground with people first and understanding where our common interests are and our and meeting people's common needs and recognizing the legitimate cause. Can anyone disagree with the legitimate cause? After what has happened to George Floyd and the entire world, there are people around the world who are protesting about this. And we as Christians are going to stand away from that? Are you kidding? What's wrong with us? What are we thinking? There are people protesting all over the world about this. And we as Christians are going to stand away from this? Are you serious? And you think that's what Jesus would do right now? <laughs> what do we even think? What, 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 what are we even thinking about? I mean, this, this is a no-brainer. And we at this moment, when we can have, and, 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 and let me say this. There are no, there's no organization. There, there, there's no there's no community, I should say, that is more organized than the Christian church. And a lot of these movements are looking for an organized movement to help them in formulating what they're doing. And so they look to the church to give them structure and organization. They look to us to help them in formulating what they're doing. And so we can be there not only as a moral, moral guide, but to organize what they're doing, to give them guidance, to give them direction. And we're going to stand away because there's some ideological issues that we have that, that, that are differences. It just doesn't make sense to take that attitude at a time like this. This is a time when we should see this as an opportunity to really have a real moral voice and, a and give a real moral direction at a critical moment in Earth's history. This is a time for the church to step forward, not step back. I really like those thoughts. And I think it really just communicates this idea that we need to be looking at this moment that we're experiencing as an opportunity and not as an excuse to run back into our bubble. Logan, I know you had some thoughts, very interested to hear your perspective on this. Yeah, so, I mean, I think one thing we need to think through with this conversation of Black Lives Matter in the church, like spiritualism and secularism, let's be real, um, not to discredit the movement of Black Lives Matter in any way, actually to affirm it always, but Black Lives Matter wouldn't have to exist if the church would have stepped up at any point throughout our history. I mean, and I'll, and I'll speak to white Christianity here. Black Lives Matter only exists because of the perpetuation of systemic oppression at the hands of white people. And if the white church, when we founded this nation, would have stepped up and said, hey, we should uh, eliminate this terrible plague that's existing in our space. Or when we decided to, to allow people to be free, to say we should treat them as they are an actual you know, normal citizen in society. Uh, or at any point during Jim Crow or civil rights, if the church would have stepped up and said, hey, we're continually perpetuating systemic oppression towards black and brown people, Black Lives Matter wouldn't have to be there. So it's actually the church's fault. And for people from the church to come forward and say things such as, I'm not sure I align. And it's like, look, you've lost your opportunity to lead when you didn't lead. And we need to really speak to that because the people, the problem people have is that Marxism exists within the conversation of Black Lives Matter. Um, you know, the LGBTQ acceptance and affirming happens in the conversation of Black Lives Matter. And they destroy this idea that 
the destruction of the nuclear family is a bad thing. But the church has been the one that's perpetuated these ills over and over and over again. We know that within systemic racism and their silence on black and brown bodies being destroyed, uh, we know that the church has been the one moving body in the United States continues to be of destroying LGBTQ people and their existences and their abilities to have normal civil liberties. And we know that the nuclear family, like, you know, single parents can't even step into our churches and exist in a normal space because they're judged and they're disliked and they're destroyed. And we, we continue to push this negative idea. So if the church actually wants to get invested in black and brown um, acceptance, then they should have led the way. And at this point, the secular world's doing a better job at it. And it's our time to stand behind them and say, fine, you show us what it looks like to be a Christian because we clearly have absolutely no idea. Yeah, yeah I um, I think that the church's discomfort in being a part of the movement speaks to, A, like what you were saying, Pastor Nix, the way that we've demonized a lot of these um, Eastern cultures and practices and be just the misalignment of our priorities. Like I think the mission statement and the moral compass of the movement speaks for itself and that the moral compass of the movement is what it's saying it's about. We're about protecting all black lives, period. And I think that the point of the movement as it stands right now is that this is a this should be a unifying and universal mission that people from all different life paths, all different viewpoints can all get behind. We may disagree in all these other ways, but there's this one thing that's like on a basic human level, we all agree with this idea that black lives matter and that's it. And if these other things that people are seeing, that Christians are seeing that they disagree with, if they are looking at those things and saying, I can't be associated with that because that's that's what it is. It's saying, I don't want to be associated with this. Then you are then prioritizing your personal beliefs about varying things over the lives of black people. And and that's it. That It's that simple. That's what you're doing. And I think, I don't, I mean, I, I think that the fact that the mission statement itself is so universal and because we know that we believe as Christians, anything that you that that is true, anything that is true, that is right, that is good, that aligns morally, that comes from God, right? Whether or not it's being acknowledged openly, that's what we believe. Good things, loving things come from God. It's who he is, it's what he is, it's his very definition. Yeah. So that means that if this if this movement's mission statement is good and true, it comes from God, period. Like that, it is, to me, it's that simple. And if people are unwilling to see that and they're afraid of being associated with it because of these other things that scare them, then their priorities are misaligned. And I don't think they care about black lives as much as they want to say that they do. Yeah, and I would, just to kind of piggyback off of what Esther was saying, um, it, in some ways, it almost feels as though there is the the like knee-jerk reaction to find um, any particular reason, excuse, or example uh, to justify a very passive approach to being involved in something that is socially um, uh, engaging in a community. And I think that's been part of the more of the, the frustrating thing that I think we've all kind of 
uh, been hinting at, that have been suggesting, that have been stated in the conversation so far is uh, uh, whenever there is a moment where the church has the opportunity to be on the right side of history, it seems as though there is a, a, a tendency to look for uh, any form of flaw that they can identify and use that as justification to step away from it and use it as a stance of right now, we just want to stay neutral. You'll hear them say things, we don't want to get involved in the politics. This is too divisive. We need to get back on focusing on preaching the gospel. We need to focus on getting people to heaven, to Christ. And that I think is part of this frustration where you can look at multiple examples of American history and it seems as though God has literally been handing the evangelical church moments to be on the right side of history. And it seems as though they continue to choose to stay neutral because when they go through what they believe is like a checklist of things that need to be uh, perfectly aligned in terms of their values, if there's one or two things off, regardless of what the number is, um, that is enough for them to step away and stay neutral. And I think that I think is part of the frustration. I remember hearing a sermon that like in moments like this, it is like ripe for Christianity. Like the core message of the gospel could fill such a huge hole in this conversation. Like there's a reason why uh, uh, so so many of the, the uh, uh, powerful uh, messages we've heard are coming from like pulpits, from from sermons, from from people who are in some ways connected to a religious background. There's something profound that comes from our faith that it, it's impossible to stay neutral because the world needs that final piece to see how powerful this message is. Yeah, no, that's really good. Um, before before I make my comment, uh, this is an all seriousness. I just saw an alert on my phone that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was hospitalized. So we need to pray that she comes through that all right, because that's this is not a game at all. Literally not a game. Experiencing fever and chills, so and a possible infection. Hopefully, it's not life threatening. But my heart skips a beat every time I see something like that. But um, just real quick on the topic. Um, so I think it was maybe last week I got a Instagram DM from a guy who um, is a part of uh, used to attend this um, this Christian like ministry event when I was in law school in Chicago. Um, he was one of the coordinators of it. And I did some work with and um, I hadn't spoken to him in a long time. It'd been years. And so his name kind of popped up in my IG DMs. And I was thinking like, oh, OK, let's see what this dude has to say. And <laughs> he led in this DM to me with, uh, hey, what's up, brother? Uh, I was wondering if you want to do a Instagram live or Facebook debate with me on Black Lives Matter and Christianity. And um, <laughs> you know, I, I had a, I had a series of emotions, and there's a series of different ways that I think I could have responded in that moment for sure. Um, but I responded with two letters: no. 
<laughs> I said no. And uh, he wrote me back. He's like, oh, are you sure? Like, I think these things need to be discussed. And I was like, you sure? no, I, I don't. I actually don't think that it needs to be discussed. No. Um, God bless you, man. And um, we went back and he went back and forth with me for a bit. So I had to I had to restrict his account. And so I don't think he can see my post anymore. But um you know, it, it was one of those things where it's like, yeah, I, it was obviously upsetting maybe for a split second. But I, in retrospect, I just kind of thought about it. And it was just like, um, it's just really sad that a lot of Christians have been sort of conditioned to have this kind of energy towards this moment and this movement. And it's like you, your reaction in this moment uh, where it seems that so many in our world are getting clarity on what's been happening globally and, of course, in this nation for centuries, um, Christians have in, in a lot of ways been conditioned to push back on it. And it's almost like, you know, evangelicals are like the the standard bearers or the protectors of the American myth. And it's like any sort of attack towards that, um, they're on the front lines of defending it for whatever reason, as opposed to being on the front lines of being like Jesus. Uh, as you all have been talking about. And so um, I just think that a real spiritual reorientation and awakening needs to happen within the Christian tradition uh, because where where we've gotten to up until this point, and this is across different cultures because there's a lot of self-hating anti-Black energy among some Black evangelicals. Um, and so this is not just a white evangelical thing, although they are the face of the movement for sure. Um, there are a lot of others who've been conditioned and and colonized to uphold and uplift um, these Christian myths about America and white superiority and white supremacy and safe, comfortable spaces for anti-black racism. And so we just really need to wake up. Yeah, I if I I just want to I know we're about to move on, but just to kind of build on that just a little bit, like there is so much anti-blackness out there present in Christianity. And unfortunately, it does extend to some of our very own people. And I guess there's, there's, there are two things that I really want to say. One, capitalism is not of God. I, I think that really needs to be said. And Marxism is a very clear critique of capitalism. Some people can say Marxism swings too far to the other side and Marxism is like, you know, anti-Christian or whatever. But please understand that capitalism is also anti-Christian. I mean, any any economic institution or, or 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 economic philosophy that could make human beings capital, like that could see human beings as property, is just not of God. It just doesn't work. So you know, people Christians have this huge issue with Marxism, as if capitalism is like a a better alternative. It is not. It, it just is not. That's one. Two. The thing that I'm really kind of troubled by that I haven't really heard us kind of talk about, you know, I know Logan mentioned earlier, there's this line in, in the Black Lives Matter, um, you know, what we are about thing, you know, what we believe, where they talk about, um, you know, we exist to disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family requirement. And, and some people have taken real big issue with this concept of disrupting the nuclear family, when in reality they say the nuclear family requirement, and, and the reason why I take especially like I take real issue with that is is I believe that Black Lives Matter is probably the clearest pro-black 
legislative articulation like organization I've ever like I've encountered and like there are a lot of like organizations out there fighting for black people but this one is like really really clear in its in its advocacy for black people and and the western prescribed nuclear family requirement influences everything including the way we give aid and support to women, we're going coming out of this pandemic. If we ever come out of it, we are going to see like record numbers of evictions because renters won't be able to pay all those months of you know of like delayed rent. And you know who's going to be like most directly impacted by that? Black women. Black women are going to be most directly impacted by that reality. But the Western prescribed nuclear family requirement says that those single black mothers have somehow made the biggest mistake of their life, that they don't deserve it, that they are a problem, that we shouldn't give them aid, that we shouldn't support them. So we desperately need to disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family requirement in order to protect black lives. But so long as straight men so long as Christians are fighting against this as if like, oh, like this doesn't benefit me, so I can't possibly see the way it would benefit anyone else, as long as that's the reality, black lives will not matter. And so I, I'm just really frustrated by the layers of anti-blackness that exist and the layers of colonization that exist even within our own community. Let, let, let me, it, it, if I could, if I could just make a uh, make a comment, and oh, and my and and and, and Michael <clears throat> kind of brought it up. It is it is this this narrative, and it's a prophetic one about the two views of America. Because the evangelical view is that America is the world's savior. Okay, mm -hmm. and it's based on that that there is this pushback against any critique of America or any negative critique of America. And the biblical prophetic view that comes from our church in Revelation 13 is that America is the beast with lamb-like horns mm. and that America is not the savior of the world, that it's just the opposite. And this was an understanding, by the way, that this church has always understood about America from its very inception. And it is that preaching about America that will bring persecution to our church, mm -hmm. that will be countercultural, that will be disruptive, that will say that America is not the savior of the world that America is a beast with lamb-like horns. It's Christian-like, but it's not Christian. Mm. This is a wicked nation. This is a nation that oppressed the African-American and African for 246 years and another 100 years through Jim Crow segregation. This is a nation that has bombed weaker, weaker, weaker countries. This is a nation that has never lived up to what it has said in its constitution. This is the message that we're supposed to be preaching about the real America. And, and you see, this is the problem, that we are not living up 
to our calling as a church. And this is what will bring persecution to us because these are the two narratives. And you see all of the evangelical Christians are supporting Donald Trump because they believe that America is the savior of the world. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Mm. The Bible teaches the opposite. And that's the prophetic message that we're supposed to be preaching right now. And it's not going to be a message that people are going to like to hear. But you see, there are a lot of people in our church who are just as evangelical and conservative as the evangelical Christian movement. They're right in line with that. They, they support Trump just like everybody else. Mm. And that's the problem we have right now in this church. We're not living up to our calling as a church. We have a prophetic message that we're supposed to preach and we are afraid to preach it. And Ellen White says some very strong things. I was just reading it tonight in preparation for this. She says some very strong things about economic inequality and that it is that it is that it is against God's 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 purpose for his people. And that economic inequality will cause criminal behavior and will cause the kinds of things we're seeing right now that it was never God's intention to have this kind of economic inequality. And if we follow the scriptures and the Old Testament, we would not have these kind of problems right now. Mm. This is what we're supposed to be preaching. And it was not, and it will not be something that this country and people in this country will be comfortable with. But this is the challenge that we have right now. And nobody wants to hear this message, not even those in our own church. Mm. Mm. That's a word. Um, it's honestly amazing to think that, you know, the religion that we all prescribe to compels us to do the most uncomfortable thing of using our gospel to be out there, be among the people and really strive for true socioeconomical change. But we've really just lied to ourselves constantly over the years, brainwashed ourselves into thinking that the Bible is telling us to do the exact opposite, to avoid conflict, to avoid change, to remain in, in the bubble. So very good conversation. I did almost do my hand swing thing. This is really good. Personally, it's one of my favorite segments so far. <laughs> and now we're just going to and, 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 and now let me just say this. Let me just say <laughs> this. Garrison, Garrison and Adrian, it's your generation that's going to have to preach that because I'm almost finished. Logan too. Logan's a pastor too. You're going to have to carry that ball. So remember that. I've laid it out to you. <laughs> noted, Doc. Duly noted. Okay. All right. Perfect. We're, we're going to make sure we check in on their progress next week too, just to keep All you right. accountable. All right. Uh, but so we, we have our next segment and we're just going to be talking a little bit about uh, Amy Cooper. And if you do remember, she is the lady that um, that Karen, a peaceful and innocent bird watcher in a New York City, in a park in New York City. Um, he decided to not press charges. And we're going to have Esther set that table for us and really help us to understand what this means for restorative justice and beyond. All right. So we talked about Amy Cooper and Christian Cooper a couple weeks ago. Um, thanks, Vernon, for just reminding everybody what that was. Um, so, yeah, recently, the, so the DA is charging Amy Cooper for, oh. for filing a false claim to the police. Um, so Christian Cooper came out and has made a statement 
not talking about him pressing charges or not. He was pretty clear that like, it's not up to him to press, like the DA is pressing the charges. It's not actually up to him. But what he was saying is that he's not planning to be a part of that investigation at all, to help with that investigation at all, unless they subpoena him. So there was a lot of, you know, people coming online to talk about how it can be sort of frustrating to see um, black people who've been done wrong act out of mercy or show mercy to those people instead of, you know, basically saying like, you get what you get. Um, but Christian Cooper's um, statement essentially was saying that, you know, she lost her job, she lost her reputation, um, and he doesn't feel like exposing her to the harshest punishment that our criminal justice system can offer would be commensurate to the harm that was done since there, he wasn't actually physically harmed. Um, so, Obviously, we've had this conversation before in the past with other, with other, you know, the Botham Jean situation. It can, it comes up continuously because when things like this happen publicly, black people collectively feel the pain. So then, collectively, we want to feel the satisfaction of watching people get what they deserve, essentially, and in hopes that it will deter other people from doing the same thing. Um, so, essentially, what I wanted to talk about is. Right now, we're watching people, um, we're fighting for a more just and a more compassionate justice system, A, or if you're not doing that, you're actually, some people are actually fighting for the, the like abolishing our current system and replacing it with something different. And there seems to be a sort of dissonance in trying to push that message while also asking for that system that we are questioning to handle harms done against us in the same way that we are requesting that they not handle things when we are accused of doing harm. So the question that I wanted to ask you guys for us to discuss isn't necessarily like what should happen to Amy Cooper in particular, but a larger conversation that I think a lot of people are struggling with, which is how do we ask for justice and fight for justice um, against the people who've done wrong to us, while we are also in the process of trying to redefine what justice is and what it should look like and how it can be fair and restorative rather than punitive. I, I guess I'll just jump in and say, you know, like, I, I think it's a fair question. I mean, our, our criminal legal system, there are those within the restorative justice community who don't even call it a criminal justice system precisely because it is not just in any way. So the, so the criminal legal system, um, wow, somebody's FaceTiming me right now. Uh, the criminal legal system <laughs> already, you know, is it, messed up. It, it's, it's not fair in any way, shape or form. And so from that perspective, I can certainly understand not wanting to go through that system. Um, but, but Restorative justice asks some very specific questions that I think are important to answer in this instance. And I think in any instance where someone might really want to actually accomplish that, right? Like, like they ask, you know, who was harmed? What do they need? What does the harm person need? And whose obligation is it to meet that need? And sometimes I think that the forgiveness, like, you know, way of doing this can just kind of completely gloss over, especially that last, like that last question is like, whose obligation is it to meet the need of the harmed individual? 
And, and I think Christian forgiveness, you know, especially within a colonized frame can often be like, well, we just got to let it go. But but there is something to be restored. And I would feel most comfortable with the Christian Cooper situation or any situation. I feel most comfortable if we really are honing in on this idea of what is going to be restored and who's going to actually be responsible for that restoration. May, may I? Sure. I, I, I think I think what <clears throat> I think what's interesting here is that how the criminal justice system has changed because during the 60s and you know this is before your time there was a strong um, belief in making the criminal justice system a system of rehabilitation and during that time they had a system in place where those who were incarcerated um, were were uh, rehabilitated so they had um, college classes they had places where um, uh, those in prison could be taught trades some of them went to college they got degrees um, they were literally rehabilitated so that when they got out of prison they could live meaningful lives and for the most part, it was a very successful system. But at some point, there was a change and a philosophy developed that said, no, they need to be punished. Forget all of this stuff about rehabilitation. Why are we making things so easy for these criminals? We need to be punishing them. They need to pay for their crimes. And suddenly the criminal justice system changed into this punitive kind of system where those who were incarcerated were punished. And then of course, now we have this, we have this criminal industrial complex where now it's a profit system mm. where you have these corporations who are making money by incarcerating people. And so that's really the larger issue here that because we have had this transformation in what criminal justice is, that now it's a for-profit issue where people are warehoused and where now you have individuals who are actually trying to determine now when, when someone is in elementary school, how many of these kids are, are actually going to be warehoused into our prison so we can make money off of them? That's a larger issue here that we should be looking at because you know, Amy, Amy Cooper not going to jail says something about who are the prisons being built for, you see. You see, 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 the issue is the prisons are not being built for people like her. See, that's what this is about, you see. That's why everybody didn't have a problem with her not going to prison. We're not building them for her. These prisons are being warehoused and built for people like you and me, okay? because they're no longer being built to re rehabilitate people. That's not what they're there for. No one's trying to do something to keep people from returning to prison because that's what, that's what the rehabilitation system was about. We don't want recidivism. We want, we want when someone goes into prison to be, to be made into a productive citizen when they come out, we wanna give them skills. 
We want to give them a degree so that when they come out, they can find a job, they can be productive. They don't have to go back to crime. Nobody cares about that anymore. So that's really the larger issue that really needs to be discussed when we're talking about this. Why is it that she can't pay for her crimes? You know, why is, why is it that the philosophy altogether has changed? It says something about where we are as a society and how we view the prison industrial complex and who the prison system is for. So that, that's what we're missing in all of this. Yeah, I think that's good, Bob. And I think um, to sort of build on that a little bit, um, you know, I I think that, so I, there's two components to it. And I mean, you know, from my perspective, whenever we're talking about our response to, you know, conduct that um, is in violation of some sort of a law, there's obviously the level of what does it take for there to be the uh, personal restoration of, the wrong that was done by Amy Cooper to Christian Cooper, right? And so I think Christian Cooper is obviously well within his right to decide what the parameters are for that restoration to take place. Now, I think even even with him saying that he probably wouldn't participate unless he's subpoenaed, I, you know, I don't think he's out here saying, you know, he wants to go out to dinner with Amy Cooper or anything like that. He's just kind of saying, you know, I think that enough has been done here and I don't necessarily want to participate. And that's fine from him. But I think there's obviously the more public um, issue of how do we, um, you know, because there are in some ways, at least the way the system is set up now, there are these preventative mechanisms that are, are taken into account, which would say, well, you know, a Amy Cooper didn't end up causing harm to Christian Cooper, but you know, A, has she done something like this before? Could she have done it, you know, going forward from here? Were he to have not have caught her on camera? All this difference. I mean, so there's a there's a public interest in knowing that folks in that region know that, you know, this behavior is not okay. And and so there there's this whole concept of, well, you know, Christian Cooper not willingly participating or not doesn't absolve you know, the local, you know, DA's office and stuff from pursuing charges when they should pursue charges, because that's because there's a there's a broader public good that has to be served by pursuing that as well. If they believe that there's enough evidence to move forward with something and that, you know, it's the conduct needs to be, you know, redressed in some way. So in many ways, I think the way that this is playing out is is sort of, um, as the system currently exists, it's pretty much how it's supposed to work. Um, you know, the, the DA who is pressing charges can't force, you know, someone to to, um, to participate outside of a subpoena. And so if he's saying that he would, um, you know, be responsive to a subpoena, then okay, then I think the process will move forward from there. But there is, of course, the broader backdrop of, um, you know, how should the, you know, because we're in this, the middle of this topic of, you know, how should the system work and does it need to be deconstructed and what does reconstructing it look like? And you all have kind of touched on a lot of that already. But so I think that at the end of the day, you know, Christian Cooper is entitled to feel however he wants to feel. But I think he does also need to recognize that it is um, it is bigger than just him. 
um, and it's bigger than just Amy Cooper. And um, that may not necessarily be, you know, something that he um, wants to be a champion for, and he doesn't necessarily have to be. But the reality is that it is just bigger than these two persons. And um, and so for that reason, I think it does make sense for um, the charges to move forward. And, and then he should, if he's subpoenaed, then, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll be responsive to that and it'll keep on going from there. I think one of the things that, um, you know, like Esther and I, we, we've had a, a few conversations on this topic and I think I find myself at a bit of like a brick wall, uh, primarily because one of the main components of restorative justice is there, there is a form of like transformation that an individual kind of goes through um, like when Pastor Nixon touched on what happened in the 60s, uh, there were strategies that were implemented to kind of help them into their next phase of life, like post uh, prison, so that you can go on living uh, in hopefully a better form of life. And um, I think when I think about that concept and I frame that into, you know, when we talk about how, um, um, an extreme amount of arrests and imprisonment of people of color aren't making their community safer. Um, I do wonder if that same line of thinking can be applied to the the Amy Coopers or the George Zimmermans or the police officers um, that took Breonna Taylor's life. Because I do wonder when we talk about something like restorative justice, I, I'm struggling to know what can be done for those people when the prime motive behind their actions was a failure to see a person of color as a human. And so I don't know when we talk about restorative, um, what does a transformation for white America look like when they've done a hate crime based on a race to another person? Because I think that is part of where some of the tension that we're seeing is when she walks into that courtroom, uh, uh, I think it was the cop who um, she's like bawling her eyes out and like she's hugging, I think she hugged the, was it the judge. Mm -hmm. And so in that moment, there's no real way for me to assess if she now views people of color uh, as human beings now. I, I don't know how to judge that. I don't know if she's being remorseful I don't know if those are just crocodile tears that we've kind of seen white women weaponize throughout history. And so that's that's part of the charge that I feel. I'm like, no, that that isn't enough. And I think primarily, which is kind of what Pastor Nixon touched on, that line of grace is never really given to people of color. And I, I think that is where I, <laughs> I find that, that tension with restorative justice is because I, I don't know how to convert racism out of you because there's no real way for me to assess that. And it, it is an ongoing process for many people because it's very much been indoctrinated in us um, because, you know, we've grown up in a very white supremacist country. And that I think is where I, I find the biggest struggle. I, I don't know what restorative justice looks like for a person with racist ideals. And then they go on to perform crimes based off of those ideals. I definitely, I mean, I don't think that 
just to be practical and to be as, as concise as possible, I don't think that we can afford for this case to be dismissed and not push for some sort of legislative change when it comes to handling um, these cases. And the reason why is because we have a system in place, whether or not you like it or not. And the goal that we as black people have advocated for, for a long time is equity. You know, are we being treated in an equitable way in this system? I mean, it is every, obviously we're, we're wanting the system to change because we've seen how terrible it can be, but we're also asking for equity here. And um, I genuinely don't think that, you know, we can walk away from this case and just say, well, yeah, we're just going to kind of let her, you know, call the police off of, you know, with false information. We're just going to kind of let that one go um, without having a systemic change or a push for a systemic change that would allow that conversation to st that situation to still be addressed in a way that is still meaningful and provides, um, you know, healing, provides accountability, responsibility to be taken by her. Because um, right now, I mean, our adult system is not set up for restorative justice to be functioning. It's a juvenile justice idea at this time. And so we're looking at a situation where really the anecdote to, you know, the, the answer to our question here about using restorative justice is outside of the realms of the system that we're currently working in. Um, that doesn't mean we shouldn't delve into that, but we have to accompany that thought of like, well, I'm just going to be nice with, or I'm not going to, I'm not going to send you to prison with an actual accountability conversation as well and look at some legislation and actually push that forward. Yeah, no, that's, that's the reality. And I'll just speak to kind of like, you know, the white people in this conversation, white people don't need forgiveness they need to change their ways and and we know within our system we kind of all agree that punishment is a way to to figure that part out you know i don't i don't think when white people say or do racist things against black and brown people the conversation needs to be like i'm sorry and then the response needs to be i forgive you and then they they part ways because you don't learn anything with that you know you need to be held accountable to the point of saying like look Logan, whoever, Karen, Molly, whatever your name is, I don't know, Noah, I don't know. Um, whatever your name is. <laughs> whatever your name yeah, is. Pump, um, all the brakes, um, yeah, pump, pump those. The, uh, oh yeah, that's a, I got you. The, uh, whatever the name is, like you don't need forgiveness, you need um, like a little bit of punishment. San Francisco, to speak to Simone's point, they just put together the Karen Act, which is an act that says like um, uh, Karens are going to be like punished. Uh, the it's just a rise of smartphones. What they're actually calling it? I'm sorry. Yeah, it's for called it. the Karen Act. It's with a C. <laughs> no, you're good. C A R E N Act. Um, so kind of like a, like a play on the words. But it just says with the rise of smartphones, there's been increase of racial profiling and discriminatory incidents recorded and shared on social media and subsequently broadcast on the news nationwide. And they basically go on to say that if you're involved in calling the police on black and brown people, you know, recording them, trying to put out falsified information to, to basically harm them, then there needs to be a punishment for that. But to, to go to this, like we could say that this, nothing bad really happened. But if we found out that, 
you know, there was an attempt of murder if someone was plotting to take advantage of our children. And there was like so many things that could, we could say, oh, very clear ideas to harm. We would say, lock this person up, throw away the key, like let's give them time to rethink their actions. And they're like, well, nothing bad happened to this. But, you know, in the, in the wake of like George Floyd in this conversation, uh, bad things happen when police show up and they've decided to believe that black people are harming and going to harm white people. And so that's, um, yeah, a really uh, important part that white people really need to see a little bit of justice in this conversation and not just like a little bit of forgiveness because we've been forgiving white people for hundreds of years for, for like silly mistakes and it's gotten us very, very slow progress. That's facts. Um, I think this Karen Act, it, the act actually being called the Karen Act is hilarious. Whoever came up with this legislation is a genius. And this is when you really get to see memes uh, come really well into legislation. I, I really love that. Okay, so we're gonna move on from Karen. Um, I heard she's great, but we have other things to talk about. Um, Trump and his agenda. Uh, oh, dude, a lot of things has been have been going on. There's so much Trump that I kind of feel like it might be fun to play a little game. We're going to call this the uh, Trump lightning round. We're all going to go around, say a comment on the things that Trump is doing, and uh, maybe even try to prescribe him some medication. So Roger Stone has been cut off, has been uh, not cut off the hook. What was it? He has been uh, lifted off the hook, however the term goes. He's not getting punished because he's Trump's friend. What do we... <laughs> what do we think about this? I mean, I feel like Trump is just doing so many things that has that really hasn't been done before, and I just feel slimy every time I think about it. Bro, Trump, he does not care, bro. Like he he really does not care about the optics. He doesn't care about the timing. He doesn't care about none of those things, bro. And so, um. He, I mean, he literally said it with his chest. He was out here like, I mean, y'all could prosecute my homies, but I'm, I'm gonna pardon all of them or commute their sentences. This is what he did here, and he's doing exactly. I mean, it's like the only things that he tells the truth on are like the most abominable things you can think of doing. But he, you know, so when he says something abominable, believe him. Um, yeah, it's. I don't know. I don't got much else, man. He just really doesn't care about the optics. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like he, you know, I don't know that there could be a worse time for him to be doing something like this. He could have at least like waited till hopefully on the way out or something. Maybe like slide his boy a lob, but it's like, oh, middle of a pandemic, you know, second uptick, perfect time to let my homie free. So, but that's yeah. what he wanted with that. Like he wanted it during the pandemic. But he's trying to do this stuff to get everything kind of back to normal, right? Like that's that's what like Trump's plan. That's why he's pushing us to hate Fauci right now because Fauci's trying to give us like real information. That's why he's telling schools they need to be open because he's like, look, the only way for me to win is people think that good things are happening in our country right now. And that's currently not the case. And Roger Stone, he's just doing this because he doesn't believe that any bad came from the Russia investigation. And so he's going to He's gonna keep pushing this Russian hoax narrative on and on and on again. And that's just Trump. Trump is going to try to lie his way out of everything. And the reality is, is that 
I mean, unfortunately, I have a lot of them, maybe even watching, probably none of them are watching, but are my Facebook feeds, and they believe it. They think, oh, yeah, Roger Stone should be, like, let free because he didn't do anything wrong, and schools should open because this thing is a hoax, and Fauci's an idiot. And I see this, and I'm like, literally every president ever has, like, turned to specialists and said, like, what do you think? And Trump's saying, no, I'm, I'm the president. I know everything. I have all the answers. Just get him, like, get him out of here. I'm, I'm, I'm done with. This is, I can't. It's ridiculous. I don't know. I mean, it's like it's so ridiculous. You want to laugh, but the more I think about the fact that he just literally doesn't care at all about how things look, about how corrupt it's, like how obvious he's being in his corruption. I honestly find that very scary because that's the behavior we see from men who really believe and know that they're powerful enough to avoid all consequences. And a lot of times they're right that they are that powerful and they can avoid any consequences. So him being out here all blatant with it, um, like, yeah, you want to be like, you're so stupid. Like, why, like, why would you be so obvious about this? We can all see what you're, what you're doing. But I, uh, it is honestly frightening to me because that says to me, he is very confident in his ability to do whatever he wants and have absolutely nothing happen to him. And he could very well be right. Yeah, I totally agree that we should be super, super nervous about this. I I won't speak for long, but I'll say this is an autocrat, you know, like he is really trying to exist in the space of the autocrat, you know, like they'll like, Politicians really look to their voters to gauge whether or not their actions are are justifiable or right. But we're actually seeing amongst Republicans, amongst his very own voters, his actions are becoming even like increasingly reprehensible. Like like when people are saying like, "Yo, I can't get on board with what Donald Trump is doing in this situation, in that situation, in that situation," and it hasn't deterred him from doing those things because he is trying to be a dictator like that's what we like like he's testing the reins of our democracy and we're finding that it's very very fragile that anyone elected can kind of do whatever they want and because of the co-equal branches of government and the separation of powers they can kind of get away with it so long as there is at least you know a, a a majority or at least half of the people are willing to go along with it and so it's very, it's very frightening to know that he has acted as as though he's above the law and has been proven right. Is is he is he possibly trying to um, divert attention from his attorney general by doing this, um, by um, commuting um, Roger Stone's sentence, diverting attention from? from Bill Barr because uh, Barr was getting a lot of attention, especially after the deputy who he fired, um, he went up to uh, Congress and testified about what happened with his dismissal. And it was bringing a lot of attention to Barr. A lot of people were saying that Barr dismissed him unfairly and wrongfully. And it seemed like he was, he was doing it because Trump wanted him to go. And Barr is supposed to be testifying, I think, in the next week or so. 
And, um, and so Trump does this to try to divert attention away from Barr because a lot of heat's coming down on Barr now. And, um, and of course, Barr, Barr opposes this. Barr said he, he doesn't think this looks good. He doesn't think the president should have done this. So he's trying to uh, act as if he is, uh, he is not Trump's you know, bag man. He doesn't agree with Trump doing this. That's what he's saying. So, um, you know, you never know how these things are, but the timing of him doing it, he, he, he could have obviously waited until after the election to do this when he, you know, if he loses the election, all of these presidents always pardon a whole lot of people on their way out. He didn't have to do it now. Why would he do it now? Um, you know, he could have waited to do it. So, you know, the timing of it, it doesn't make sense. It certainly doesn't help him with his reelection because he was um, he was claiming that Biden is corrupt. But that takes that argument away from him now. He can't he can't uh, claim any corruption against Biden after doing this. How can he call Biden corrupt doing something like this? Yeah, that takes away that argument from him completely. So um, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make a lot of sense unless. Uh, perhaps he was trying to divert attention from someone else, and um, you know he, he's he's not he's not he's not he's not he's not as crazy as you think he is. He he's got some reason for doing it. That that's that's my little take, perhaps. I think that is something that we need to definitely be mindful of. Is that Trump is still uh, you know I, you know I don't want to insult him and just you know go into this tirade, but he's an idiot. And I think what's important to remember is that we really need to understand that despite that, he's also making very calculated moves. Right. He's making very calculated moves that can distract us enough to have him in the office for four more years. So I know we said this a ton of times. Please feel free to be mad. Tweet your tweets, statuses, your statuses on Facebook, post your posts on Instagram, but also vote in conjunction with all those things. Yeah. yeah. And just to, to piggyback off of what Jordan just said, um, with understanding the, the frustrations that people have in this upcoming um, election, uh, Biden was clearly not any of our first choices. Many of us in here were leaning in the Warren direction, then she left, and we were, you know, some of us were leaning on Bernie, but primarily we were leaning in that more progressive direction. I, I would want to say, um, this is a conversation that I, that I had with Esther earlier, this is not the election to gamble with your vote. This is not the election to, uh, in some way, stand on a very um, uh, ambiguous form of, of, of self-righteousness that I would say in saying that the system has failed in various areas. Therefore, um, they are not um, worthy of my vote. But what we've seen in the last four years are a number of policies, a number of appointees that this current ad administration has implemented that has affected immigrants, our LGBT brethren, um, uh, people of color. And 
it is in some ways magnified during COVID-19 um, how destructive this current presidency can be. And I think that is where we really need to frame how important this election is, is that we all recognize that our level of enthusiasm for Biden is a bit lower because he was not our ideal choice. But we still need to admit that his policies still align closer to what we believe is morally right versus what Trump has placed in in in, in terms of what his policies are. And that I think we, we, we have to realize that we are making a very dangerous decision to step out of this voting, voting arena because rest assured, these Trump voters are not looking at this the same way. They are amped up. They are w waiting for these uh, voting booths and they're ready to vote for him again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, raise, raise that again, raise that again, G. Yeah, raise that again. What, what did it say? There we go. No. <laughs> Don't play with your vote. Don't play with it. No. What what I think is super just exciting though is that I forgot to mention that we do have Kanye West presidential campaign manager here with us, Garrison Hayes. Thank you so much for coming to the show. I, I didn't birthday party. I know he's running on the birthday party, guys. That is a joke. <laughs> don't, don't, don't play yourself. <laughs> Shout out to Chance the Rapper. Oh boy. I mean, does anyone want to break that down? I mean, I think it might be good to try to no, no, no. Like, <laughs> I don't I mean, need to deserve airtime, honestly. Yeah. I, I mean what, what I regret the time it took me to make this. <laughs> <laughs> Can never get that back. Um, I, I will say, though, I do think it is important, you know, in our, in our individual spaces, you know, on the show, wherever, to make sure we're constantly working to demystify a lot of arguments, a lot of points that are being made out there. Um, again, like, I, I, Esther, if you want to talk about actually your experience on Twitter today um, concerning voting, Please feel free. I kind of I feel like I put you on the spot right now, but I, I would definitely yeah, love to feel like I, I can do it short, like in a like I can make it short. Um, Angela Dave, there was a clip going around on Twitter of Angela Davis, an interview with Angela Davis, where they asked her who she was personally voting for in this election. And she proceeded to say that while she believes Biden is extremely problematic and she listed reasons for that in his past, he does not have the greatest track record. She said that right now, she believes that we should personally vote for the person who is going to be more easily pressured by mass movements for radical change, even if that candidate is not running a platform based on those radical ideas. And so she said she is going to vote for Joe Biden for that reason, because in comparison wow, Trump, wow. he is more easily pressured and more likely to listen to a mass organized effort to push really progressive ideas. Now, in response to that, there were many people who felt that, you know, Angela Davis, who is this radical thinker, she mm -hmm. is yeah. She's a, a abolitionist. Like any conversation we're having right now about abolition, 
that's based on Angela Davis's work, right? Like she's that person. And a lot of people were like, she betrayed us. Like she is quote unquote endorsing this moderate candidate who, you, I mean, and there's so many things you could say about him, you know, the rape, the rape accusations, all of that. Um, not rape, sexual assault, but um, I tweeted a tweet today that basically just said that she, what she said was in line with her radical work for the simple reason that she was arguing that we need to choose the candidate who will listen to our organized movement, right? So the idea isn't he's he's the ideal candidate. The idea isn't I agree with him. The idea is we need to keep doing this work we've been doing already to stay organized, to apply pressure. And then we need to vote somebody into the office who is likely to actually listen to that or more likely than the opposition, the opposition. to actually listen to that. And in response to that, I received a, a lot of heat from a lot of people basically just saying, well, Biden has a, a, hair a horrible track record. Um, how, why do we think he's going to listen to us? Um, also, there is a number of people who think we should not be voting in elections because it legitimizes um, a system that was built on oppression, which fair point, I suppose. Whoa, However, whoa. it does no, nothing. No, 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 not again, not again, not again. Not again. Learn in 2016. Y'all didn't learn in 2016. Not again. Not again. People do not learn. Not again. Not again. You stand on her radical ideas and say this is still the better candidate. And I am personally, please know, she was not telling everybody else who to vote for, but I personally will still be voting for this candidate. Then the rest of us can do it too. Mm -hmm. Yo, if Angela Davis can do it, then come on. Exactly. She, Angela Davis is a communist. You hear what I'm saying? And if she can vote for Biden, everybody should be able to vote for Biden. You hear what I'm saying? She's from the Black Panther Party. You hear what I'm saying? A communist. Like, what are we talking about right now? If, can vote for Biden, if Angela Davis says she can vote for Biden, all of you radicals should be able to vote for Biden, okay? So hold your nose. And pull the lever. You hear what I'm saying? <laughs> okay, what y'all got? What problem y'all have? Y'all put on a t-shirt. Y'all should print t-shirts. Angela Davis supports Biden. Y'all should make those t-shirts. Her point though is like it's not like it's not vote first and it's not vote last. It's, it's like voting is not the end all be all. You vote accompanied with really intentional organizing efforts to push for the change you really want to see. That's really important. That's what makes it consistent. But first, but first get your behind in the voting booth and vote. Okay? That's first. Okay? That's Don't first. move, vote. Okay? Oh, man. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, dead. Oh, dead. Yeah. Honestly, like young people don't have a political change theory. Like we we don't know what we want. We don't know how to make political change. So we're out here talking crazy. And you, I mean, it's a it's a two party system. Oh, 
<laughs> Russian vodka. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We fr- <laughs> we freeze you right at the right moment. Just <laughs> <laughs> say vote and freeze him. Vote. Vote. Oh my God! I'm screaming. Biden or Kanye? <laughs> no, 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 Kanye! Stop that, Kanye <laughs> stuff. That's that's confusing people. That's confusing people. That's confusing people. That was that Kanye stuff, man. Oh, oh man, I'm done. Oh man, I'm Kim, weak. Kim, oh. Kim, not even gonna vote for Biden. Don't even fool. I mean, Kim <laughs> not gonna vote for Kanye. Maybe you didn't have a chance. <laughs> no, but, but Anthony, to to your point, as what you're saying, we I I think like our I would say the the millennial Gen Z generation, like our convictions, I would say, are in the right place. But it's like we have a lack of knowledge on how politics work. And, and that I think is the most frustrating part in this conversation. And, and people hear that clip and they think that Angela Davis is somehow like forgotten, like the right, she sold out years <laughs> of radical. <laughs> he's been pushing like what? And I think this is what has been very frustrating in this conversation. People who are anti-voting and respond in such a way, uh, uh, give rhetoric as as if we have not thought through why we're choosing to vote for Biden. No, but it, but but now but now but now remember this: Biden is what 76, 76 years old. Yes, he, he, he's he's only going to run one term. one term. So you're really voting for whoever will follow him next. Yeah. So so keep that in mind. You, you, you're voting to get Trump out and who will follow him. So keep that in mind. Yeah. That's, that, that's what we're talking about. So, so, you know, he's not going to be there forever. And he knows he's not going to be there forever. And so who he selects as vice president is important. And what the future holds is important. So you have to look at it in all of those terms. Yeah. And if you, you and if you don't vote for him, if you don't vote for him, you ain't black. So I mean, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but we gotta do. So we gotta do. We gotta do. You know I mean? <laughs> oh my god! Uh, honestly, that was uh, that may go down as as a legendary Biden interview at this point. Um, <laughs> So I'm I'm so glad that we have a new catchphrase catchphrase excuse me for the show at least through November, which is a uh, hold your nose and pull the lever. And we have one more topic we are going to hit. But what we're gonna do is we're gonna have Pastor Timothy Nixon, who is our esteemed guest, give us a quick two minute reflection on Alex Bryant being elected the new NAD president. It's a big moment, I would say, in history for our church. Um, please tell us your thoughts. Well, it is it is a historic moment. Um, the second African-American to be um, elected as president. And I think it's, it's significant as well because um, there was some question about why the process when it was outlined in the Constitution that the secretary 
uh, should succeed the president. So why were they doing this? But um, he was elected, he was put in and overwhelmingly and unanimously. So that bodes well for him. And it bodes well for him going into the general conference session as the incumbent. Uh, so, so that will put him in good stead uh, going into the election next year uh, because he will be going in as the president. And so um, it's a positive thing. It's good for him and it's good for us. And I think this was the right time with everything going on in our country. Um, I think that was a momentum that worked well for him. And he certainly was more than qualified, more than deserving. Um, and so it certainly was not something that was done because he's black. No, it was done because he was the most qualified candidate. And so um, I think it will be a good thing for us as a church and a denomination. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm praying for him that he'll do well and that we will do well and we'll go forward as a church. And someone that I know, we were in school together, I know that he's a man of God. And I, and I prayed for him and his family and get, that God will bless him and bless us as a church. Thank you. Thank you so much. So we're definitely going to keep Alex Bryant in our prayers. Frankly, I'm excited. I think this is the most excited I've been in terms of something happening in our church. I think is really, in, in my mind, pushed for change. And um, that's what we're all about here at Affirmative Interaction, progress and having progressive conversations. And we're so glad that we could have one of the OGs with us to join us on the program much respect. We loved having you on. Can't wait to have well, you on again. Well, well I'm grateful that I, I'm grateful I was able to break the age line. Someone <laughs> finally, <laughs> finally have someone on over 35. <laughs> thank, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Very welcome. So glad to now officially say that we're not a ageist show. Um, so a verb interaction again is featuring myself, Nixon, Logan, Garrison, Adrian, and Esther, and also Simone. Danny couldn't be with us here today, but we hope to see her next week. Don't forget to follow our podcast, and please do check out the PMIs that we've posted in the comments. We didn't have enough time to say it verbally today, but please check out those resources. Uh, please come and join us, 6 o'clock next Tuesday. We're going to be talking about voting. Shout out to uh, Michael Hiller in the comments Miller. for Miller, Miller, excuse Miller. Me. Shout out to Michael Miller in the comments for suggesting that we're definitely going to be talking about voting next week. Guys, thank you so much for joining us here at Affirmative Interaction. Thank you for affirming our conversation and thank you for interacting with us. See you next time. Bye.